The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, March 18th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have never been less depressed to see voter turnout depressed. Actually, overall, Florida and Arizona reported increased voting totals as compared to the 2016 Democratic primary. And that is taking into account anemic voting at the actual polls. And by the way, if you do have anemia, you are in a risk category, you shouldn't vote at the polls. And thank goodness there wasn't a lot of voting at the polls. In Illinois, voting in person was off by a half to about a third. So the Chicago Board of Election Commissioners took a snapshot at 1 p.m. on Election Day. Voting was about 125,000. And in 2016, same time, 300,000. Overall, about half a million fewer voters in Illinois this time around than in 2016. But in Florida and Arizona, they surpassed 2016 levels. The Florida Department of State reported that more than 630,000 Democrats voted by mail and more than 430,000 Democrats voted early or did early voting, did the early voting. You would just say took advantage of early voting. The total in Florida, about 30,000 more votes than in 2016. And if there was no massive pandemic that could have been spread by doing the exact action of going to a poll, interacting with a poll worker, milling about with your fellow voters. If that wasn't going on, I'm going to say that Florida would have smashed 2016 records. Arizona doesn't have all the votes in, but in 2016, they had 466,000 total votes. And just the early stuff was at 480,000 before anyone went to the polls on Tuesday. What we all need to do is to move to a no-excuse, mail-in voting option. We do need that, but we're not going to get it because when it comes to our elections, change comes slow and the pace of change is faster than ever. It seems that way, but I think it also is that way. And our ability to govern is as slow as always, faster than ever versus as slow as always. Here's an indication of the government's lack of nimbleness. The Senate today voted on Uh, House Resolution 6201, which was the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. It's part of the stimulus package. It granted paid sick leave to hourly employees, expanded unemployment insurance. It was voted in in the Senate 90 to 8, which is good. It is a needed measure. I will now list the no votes. See if you detect a pattern. Marsha Blackburn, Republican Tennessee. James Inhofe, Republican Oklahoma. Ron Johnson, Republican Wisconsin. James Lankford, Republican Oklahoma. Mike Lee, Republican Utah. Ron Paul, Republican Kentucky. Ben Sass, Republican Nebraska. And Tim Scott, Republican South Carolina. Yeah, Republicans. But, you know, let's also give Mitch McConnell, Republican leader, said you might not love it, but vote for it. So kudos to Mitch. But you may have noticed that when you have a 90 to 8 vote and a 100 member body, it means that two people didn't vote. Not voting, Cory Gardner and Rick Scott of Florida. Now, why were they not present? Because they are quarantined, self-quarantined. They are doing the responsible thing, not putting themselves and their colleagues in harm's way. But they, and most importantly, their constituents, based on that responsible action, get effectively disenfranchised. We know who these senators are. No one's going to fake a vote. We know why they are away. And yet still, we couldn't find a way to allow 
them to participate. They're senators. They're presumably following the debate. They're up on the issues. I know, I know. This legislation didn't hang on one or, you know, 48 votes. But come on. The only way these two guys could have participated in a necessary exercise in helping to save the country and thereby representing millions of Americans who voted them into office, the only way they could have done that is to come to the Senate in person while possibly contagious with a virus that especially affects the aged. So they would have to come into a body where the median member age is 62.9 years old and there's no other option. Come on. Our institutions are so often relics, relics in a time when our challenges have accelerated to a pace that a few dozen white men in white wigs couldn't have and shouldn't have anticipated 200 years ago. On the show today, is it okay to jog during a quarantine? It is. It is okay. Is it okay to point out that it's okay to a popular cable news anchor? Maybe less so. But first, Let's talk about that recovery package and the state of the economy. The Dow has triggered more circuit breakers than a sorority drying their hair at the same time. Am I right? <laughs> this is how I deal with stress, people. Great humor. The question is, though, what next? The estimable Adam Davidson is here to talk losses, gains, and John Maynard Keynes. When we talk of stimulus, when we talk of the economy, when we talk of crashes and ways to get out. There's no one I want to talk to more than Adam Davidson. These days, Adam is the CEO of Three Uncanny Four, a podcast company, is the author of The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. But he's also a founder of Planet Money, an institution that was born to figure out the Great Recession, which I guess now we will call the last recession. Hello, Adam. How are you? I'm actually okay. I mean, we, uh, yeah, so far it's like with our son, it's feeling like a little bit of an adventure for now. I can't promise I'll feel that way a week from now or yeah. a month from now. Yeah. So I remember when Planet Money came out and a giant pool of money, and there was a debate about stimulus, how much money to give, how much was too much. And you were always a bit of a Keynesian where you would argue what we need to do is get money into the hands of people, pretty much the more the better. It seems like much of the government has come around to this way of thinking this time, that they're seeing stimulating as the priority and also talking about just handing checks to Americans. Does this seem like a good idea to you? It does. Yes, it does. I think it's maybe what I would call necessary, but not sufficient. So in normal times, when there's a major economic slowdown, it's not always, but very often, and certainly the last many, not just the Great Recession, what John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, called the paradox of thrift, which is when there's a crisis, each of us behaves in a way that makes sense individually, but is disastrous collectively. So we hear a crisis is coming, we get a little anxious, we spend less because we want to save for a rainy day. And then everybody's doing that at the same time. It creates a really bad situation where people aren't buying stuff, companies aren't making money, companies start laying people off. Those people are no longer just choosing not to spend. They don't have money to spend. That freaks out the people who do have money, so they save even more, and on and on and on. 
And it's a really profound insight because before Keynes, the general thinking in economics was markets are always going to just get back to a healthy clip eventually if you get out of their way. And I'd say, except for, you know, a small number of ideologues in their 80s, that's not the general view among economists or, or policymakers anymore. And as you see now, we are seeing a real, you know, what do they say? There's no market fundamentalists in foxholes. I mean, when the crisis gets bad, everybody's a Keynesian. So yes, normally this would be the an obvious move that you would expect to have a very quick response if it's big enough. The problem here is you and I are not choosing not to spend because we're worried about you know, our economic future, we're choosing not to spend because we're stuck in our homes. You know, this is unchartered territory. We're going to have to find out how economic tools work. But yes, at a minimum, what this does is um, allows some people and businesses to prepare a little bit better with a little bit less panic so we don't add the usual paradox of thrift to the crisis and hopefully keep the economy at least if, I mean, it'll almost certainly be in a deep recession, but keep it from being in a real crisis. So when this does lift, we're in a reasonable place. Right. Now, the other tool that was deployed, which was a cutting of interest rates. Now, it seemed the day after, the day the markets responded to that, it didn't just respond by shrugging it off. The markets almost angrily responded. We cut our interest rates to zero and there was this huge crash. We should always caution not to read too much into a one-day market reaction. But why didn't that effort, cutting it to zero, seem to do anything to the people who at least have a little bit of a finger on the pulse of where the economy is going? I mean, it's the opposite. It didn't do anything, as you said. I mean, it was fascinating. I did some math, and Monday's stock market, if, if you allow for inflation, was lower than the day President Trump was inaugurated. We literally erased the entire Trump presidency of, of economic gains. This was a little bit confusing. Usually when the Federal Reserve makes a major move, the market likes it because it's a sign that the economy will, will heat up again. I think a couple reasons for caution here. One is, one thing that's been fascinating this last week, I think each of us experienced this with ourselves, with our family, you know, watching people on the news, perhaps watching our president, is almost day by day, you're seeing people getting it in a way that they didn't get it just hours before. And it seems as if people in the market have been a tiny touch behind understanding how big this is. So the Fed mm -hmm. kind of pulling out all the stops perhaps woke up some people. But then the other thing is the Fed pulled out all their stops. They shot all their gun, all their bullets. They don't have a lot. They have a few tools left, but they don't have a lot of tools left. So it's like either this works or we're in for something you know, we, we don't have a lot of other options from the central bank, which is always confusing so are you of the, when we talk about central banks. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you of the opinion and you hear this? Well, since it didn't work, it was a mistake. We should have. And people will use phrases like keep more ammo or keep your powder dry. On the other hand, there's just the no, there's a right interest rate. And if that right interest rate is zero, don't concern yourself with the fact that in the future, you can't lower interest rates again. So what does the Fed do? The Fed, the primary role of the Fed is to set what they call the interest-free rate. That means that's interbank loans, banks lending money to each other overnight. And when the Fed raises it or lowers it, it's essentially pulling a 
you're moving a dimmer switch on the entire economy, raising and lowering the amount of risk that people are willing to take, the viability of risk, et cetera. So by essentially what the Fed did is like the lights are as bright as they can possibly be. And it's trying to make banks lend money like crazy to everybody who asks them to. So restaurants that are in hard times, um, companies that need some money to to uh, survive this, individuals who might want to refinance their mortgage if that's something that you can do these days, that sort of thing. And by doing this, the Fed is hoping that through the normal process of banking, this will kind of move out throughout the economy and eventually lead to more economic activity. So it's an instant action they can take, but the impact can take quite a while, as much as months or a year, year and a half. So I I do think they really had no choice but to go all the way because they needed both to signal they're not messing around and they also needed to actually change the fundamental nature of our economy in a dramatic way. But the Fed also was doing something which it normally doesn't do. It was being pretty explicitly political and basically saying and through action, making clear, we're going to do this, but Congress really needs to act, that we can change the risk-reward calculus among bankers, and that's an important thing to do in a crisis. But at the end of the day, someone's got to start spending a lot of money, and the only one who can spend a lot of money is the government, and so they better figure out how to spend a lot of money. Yeah, so I guess every recession is different, not just bigger or smaller, or maybe they just feel different. I mean, the last Great Recession, they called great, and so that seemed different. But this one really seems different. This doesn't seem like there are too many fundamental reasons why things are slowing down as much as this huge virus. And if, you know, let us hope we get past the virus, then things will just pick up. So maybe it's analogous to a natural disaster, you know, Hurricane Katrina, but hitting everyone at once. For America, that does seem to be the case. I mean, a lot of economists were expecting that we're, we're at risk of a recession, but not at risk of a severe recession. I would say even before the virus, China, Europe, were in more serious trouble, Japan. There was more sign that something more substantial was coming. So we did have kind of a weakened global economy. But you're right, in the US certainly, economists call it endogenous. It's it's a product of the internal to the economy. I mean, the, the sort of simplistic story is companies and you can hear my work from home. My son is walking behind us. Um, he, Hi. <laughs> that's Asher. Um, he runs yeah. uh, finances for our company. Um, you know, the, the kind of standard story is companies think the future is going to be really good. They hire a bunch of people. They start making a ton of stuff. Um, that's really good. Lots of companies are doing that. People are buying stuff. Things are going great. And then at some point there's a little bit of a slowdown and then companies think, oh boy, there's this slowdown. They start, stop making stuff as much. They start laying people off. That makes people afraid. And so you actually have to like lose inventory eventually. And then sort of over time, the economy kind of kicks back in. That's clearly not what's happening. You and I, as I said, are not choosing not to shop because we just feel bad about the financial future or our employers have too many inventory in the warehouse. And so it is untested. I mean, I guess the Spanish flu is sort of the closest analog. And 
macroeconomics didn't even exist then. We didn't even, economists didn't even have a theory for how to impact the economy. You know, much like with the Great Recession, we had to invent a whole host of new tools. I think we're going to see some creativity in the coming days and weeks. Have you looked at what happens to places hit by a natural disaster? Because sometimes, I mean, I have looked at some studies and sometimes it seems like uh, obviously there is a portion of depressed activity, but then the stimulus and the rebuilding and places recover stronger than before. Not to say that the disaster was good, but if you just look at the uh, trend lines and outputs, sometimes it's higher than it would have been without a huge, disruptive, horrible thing. So part of it is just a measurement thing that the way GDP is defined, it's new products and services. And so a factory or a house or a car just sitting there is not adding to GDP. But if you destroy all that stuff and you build new ones, it's creating the appearance of growth, even though you're not actually creating new real wealth, you're replacing the old wealth. It's just more like a measurement bias, not a real like economic change. But it, there's no question that when there's an isolated disaster in a otherwise well-functioning economy, you can see a lot of economic growth. But that's, first of all, not always the case. I mean, you look at New Orleans just became a smaller city with less economic activity after Katrina. Certainly, there were lots of people who benefited, but the city as a whole just was permanently poorer. Other times, you know, natural disasters are basically poverty disasters. You know, Haiti was not really an earthquake disaster. It was a disaster of a really poor country that had terrible building standards. You know, the same earthquake in another country wouldn't have had the same kind of effect. So you see that that country just stays poor. So I don't know. I think bad things are bad. I think this is bad. I think we're now in the let's make it less bad. But I mean, look, people profit from everything. And there will be people who profit tremendously, no doubt, from this disaster. But our country as a whole will be a bit poorer. Um, that is just true. And on that passionate note, let me ask you, if you wish to stimulate the economy, you may wish to buy The Passion Economy, which was written by my guest, Adam Davidson, who is a small business owner. The name of the company is Three Uncanny Four. He's also the founder of NPR's Planet Money. Be well, Adam. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to Ash for his contribution. Ash was really glad to be on the show and uh, hopes you continue your good work. <laughs> And now the spiel. Yesterday, a man on Twitter accused me of retroactively killing his long-dead grandmother. Let us trace how we get to that place. First, I was watching CNN's coverage of the primary. Good job, Jake Tapper, always an excellent anchor, discussing with John King at the big board. Use your elbows, not your fingers, with the touchscreen, John. You got Axelrod, Gloria Borger, good. Terry McAuliffe, great experience, actual former governor. You got Alexandra Rojas of the DSA. She hasn't made an original point in a week. But okay, overall, really good show. What I needed. Then the topic shifts a little bit to San Francisco. They go live. The city has been on lockdown, which is to say, stay at home with a few exceptions. On the screen, we see a reporter. Reporters can be out. That's good. That's essential. I support that. And he's doing his stand-up at the, I think they call it the Embarcadero. It's a place where people can congregate or move, or in this case, jog, take a walk, two people walking hand in hand. And the sight of this got Jake Tapper extremely upset. 
to his great consternation, people in the background of this live shot were rollerblading. There weren't a lot of people. They weren't in clusters. But people were clearly a rollerblade. Tapper was not happy. Look, everybody understands if you have a doctor's appointment for an important, important procedure, uh, you, you go to the doctor. If you need groceries or else you're not going to be able to survive, you go to the grocery store. But this, right. this idea of people rollerblading uh, when this pandemic is going on, the idea of... Tapper went on to cite crowded beaches as being an outrage, which, by the way, is a decent point. But he returned to watching the joggers on the screen and got madder and madder. I mean, the selfishness of people who are not taking this seriously is in it's just maddening. Mm-hmm. And I get some people just don't understand it. And I get but I but what bothers me is the people who just think, well, I'm young. I'm not going to die from it. First of all, not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Second of all, you could get really, really sick and you could be injured for the rest of your life with like scarred lungs. Mm-hmm. And third of all, who the hell are you to be walking around just giving this to old people and, you, and, and you're just flippantly dismissing and, and, and. Obviously, if you are giving it to old people, you are horrible. But if you think walking around is what is giving it to old people, that's wrong. He kept coming back in disbelief at this live shot, which showed people out of doors exercising, moving, walking past each other. So I tweeted, I'm watching Jake Tapper voicing enragement at people jogging outdoors in San Francisco. It would be more rational for the joggers to be incensed that Jake is in a studio staffed by cameramen, makeup people, and sound engineers. To which Jake Tapper later tweeted, go ahead and tell Dr. Sanjay Gupta that he shouldn't be concerned by what he saw in that shot of San Francisco. B, you have zero idea what we're doing at CNN to lessen risk. Zero. Okay, first things first. I know what I'm talking about regarding jogging. I wanted to go for a jog. I did some research. Turns out it's good to jog. Plus, I am a journalist, and when I tweet things, especially criticisms of other journalists, I feel I best come correct. So, as to the issue of, is jogging outside or rollerblading a selfish act actually banned in San Francisco? No, explicitly so. San Francisco Chronicle in a Q&A on the quarantine order. Q, can I still go outside for essentials, exercise, and fresh air? Hey, yes! People will still be able to leave their homes to handle essential business in limited circumstances and to get fresh air. As far as Dr. Gupta also being upset by what he saw in San Francisco, maybe Dr. Gupta was wrong. Maybe uh, you had the phenomenon of a contributor deferring to the anchorman, possibly the anchorman who was experiencing deep ire. Maybe he heard you conflating exercise, which is good, with going to the beach which is bad, and didn't want to pick apart the message, but just wanted to communicate clearly, it's better to stay inside, which it is in general. And while Dr. Gupta is a doctor and a valuable voice in this coverage, there are other experts as well. Vox spoke to Lamar Hasbrook, a public health expert and a former senior medical officer at the CDC. He recommended exercising outdoors saying you lower your risk of catching or spreading illness thanks to good ventilation and because if you cough, nobody is around and the droplets just fall and hit the ground. Sports Illustrated's Chris Ballard quoted University of California San Francisco epidemiologist Jeff Martin about exercising outdoors. He said, A, it's okay provided you keep your distance and B, it's important to maintain fitness levels both for your stress reduction and to help the body fight the virus if you get it. The rollerbladers were quickly zipping by the joggers who were moving past the strollers and all seemed well-spaced 
in the shot we saw on CNN. As far as Jake Tapper's assertion to me that I have zero idea what we're doing at CNN to lessen risk, zero. I don't know. Perhaps I have some idea. Perhaps it's similar to what MSNBC, which I've been on and will continue to be on, I think, Friday with Brian Williams during the crisis, during the pandemic, probably similar to what they're doing. So to recap, Jake, in defending his inaccurate on-air assertion, made a Twitter assertion that he couldn't know the accuracy of about what I know. But if you want to know what the accuracy of it was, it was inaccurate. Look, I I didn't want to get into it on Twitter with Jake Tapper because Twitter sucks and it amplifies differences and it's not about conversations. And I also generally think now is a good time to just give people a break. I mean, Jake had just got done anchoring hours of coverage. He did it very well. His heart is certainly in the right place. We both have dads in their 80s. Idiots definitely shouldn't go see Kid Rock right now. In fact, in my tweet before I hit send, I had the at sign, you know, at Jake Tapper, so he'd be sure that I to, to know that I was criticizing him. But I wasn't really criticizing him, and I wasn't really calling him out. I just wrote his name to make a point, and the point is exercise good. I've been on TV, I'm on radio and podcasts, and you get nitpicked from all corners, and sometimes people feel they have to give you the at sign. Just so you know, I didn't like what you said. He didn't need to know. It's fine if he didn't know. Just wanted to make my point. Exercise, good. Being in a studio, probably less good than exercise. My point was, between jogging and getting wired by the sound guy who runs the audio wire through your shirt and under your sports jacket, jogging's better for everyone. Which brings me to the responses to our conversation. Some are good, some are bad. Most of the factual ones I think were on my side. Some of the more overwrought ones were on Jake's side. Someone wrote to me, not really, dude. You live in New York. SF residents will have to deal with the repercussions of this, not you. So your point about limiting community spread is that it won't affect me in New York. Hmm. But then we get to the guy with the grandma. A lot of us have grandmas, but this guy had an ex-grandma that he pointed to as an indication of why I was wrong. He even provided me with a picture of his grandma. She seems like a nice lady or seemed. Here's what this guy, JJ, wrote. Mr. Pesca, were she alive today, your cavalier attitude would have put at risk my grandmother, who was born seven years before the Titanic, survived Spanish flu, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, saw the lunar landing, and was in my life until she was 100. Whose grandparent will you take away? What JJ is saying is, were she alive today, I'd have killed his grandma. She'd be rolling over in her grave if she weren't actually already in her grave, but that's because of my attitude. Though, when you think about it, she did succumb to something before she even knew about my attitude, or you did. Uh, I don't know what it was. We could rule out the Kaiser and the iceberg, but other suspects or suspect attitudes are still at large. JJ, I'm sorry your grandmother died you know, before my tweet could kill her. By the way, if your grandmother were alive today, going by the seven years before the Titanic, she'd be 115 years old, making her the oldest person in the United States and somewhere between the third to fifth oldest person in the world. Just some fascinating facts to help or perhaps comfort you or maybe distract you in these hard times. And while I'm at my moment, my peak moment of least sympathetic, I will now answer your question. Whose grandparent will you take away? Arabella Kushner. Not permanently, of course, just, you know, to the sidelines before we have to deal with one of these crises again. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Lobby is the associate producer of The Gist. She has zero idea how the Brooklyn Nets got all those corona tests. Zero! 
Daniel Schrader is the producer of The Gist. He has four ideas how to make his own llama brownies from home. The Gist. I am now headed out for my daily jog. I swear never to exceed seven miles per hour if you wish to catch up to me and guilt me about your grandma in person. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.